Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The life of Mary, Queen of Scots, and her relationship with her rival and cousin, Elizabeth, Queen of England, has long been a source of inspiration for creatives. Even as far back as 1800, Frederick Seeler had written a play about Mary Stuart. It was turned into an opera by Donizetti. And from the 1930s, there have been films made about Mary. It's an irresistible romantic tale. In the 1960s, there was a trend for historical dramas, and the team that had made Anne of a Thousand Days now made a new film about Mary, Queen of Scots that came out in 1971 with Vanessa Redgrave in the title role and Glenda Jackson as Elizabeth I. More recently, in 2018, director Josie Rourke made a film with Saoirse Ronan as Mary and Margot Robbie as Elizabeth. Both of these films show the lives of the two queens, they are compared and contrasted, and both films have the Queen's meeting, though they never met in reality. But what do they tell us about history, and what do they tell us about our ideas about what we think should have happened? Before we get started, here's a very brief reminder of who we're talking about. Mary Stuart, the Catholic Queen of Scotland. Born in 1542, she was the wife of the heir to the French throne, the Dauphin and Queen of France during his brief reign, only returning to Scotland after his death. After two disastrous Scottish marriages to Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, and James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell, Mary was driven out of Scotland by rival factions and religious turmoil in 1568. She came to England for protection, where she was kept under house arrest by her unmarried Protestant cousin, Queen Elizabeth I. The two were never reconciled, Mary had a rival claim to the English throne and she was eventually beheaded on February the 8th, 1587. For this special, informal, not just the Tudors lates on Mary, Queen of Scots, in life and on screen, my guests are Dr Joanne Paul, the author of The House of Dudley, A New History of Tudor England, Jesse Childs, who wrote God's Traitors, Terror and Faith in Elizabethan England, and also joining us are two historians who have thought about how to put history on screen. Screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman and cultural historian Professor Sarah Churchwell. So 
So I suppose perhaps the place to start is thinking about how Mary has been depicted and the kind of major differences, if there are any, or if actually there's a kind of blueprint of how you'd put Mary, Queen of Scots on film. Jo? I mean, I think, generally speaking, there is always a tendency to present her in opposition to Elizabeth I. I'm not sure we've ever really had a film where Elizabeth isn't used as some sort of foil or reverse image of her. And the attempt usually is to show, obviously, two ways of being a female monarch. Yeah but also two ways of being a woman, this head versus the heart sort of presentation. Sarah. There was so much historical emphasis on her beauty that mm. I think filmmakers feel licensed in a way they don't always. Certainly we can talk also about the different Elizabeths and their different levels yes. of beauty in terms of, you know, the actresses who are cast and how they present and, you know, makeup and all of that. But the mythologizing historical tendency to absolutely emphasize Mary Queen of Scots' beauty is also, I think, a natural pull. And again, helps build up that contrast with Elizabeth as antagonist. Mm. She becomes more grotesque and Mary stays yeah. In her full flower of Scottish beauty forever. <laughs> I think there is always this idea of you can't understand or you can't present Mary Queen of Scots unless you're also looking at Elizabeth I. Jessie, what do you think? They have to be the baddies. She is this icon. She's an icon of the Scots nationalists, but also for Catholics, she's a martyr, and also she's just this doomed heroine. It's easy to see Mary and Elizabeth as two sides of the female ruler's experience in the 16th century. Mary married three times and, as the films show, had a surviving son. But she was drawn into both religious and factional disputes, which led to her overthrow. Elizabeth, meanwhile, kept her throne but never married. The films emphasise the differences. Elizabeth had no offspring and was the last of the Tudors, while it was Mary's son James who succeeded Elizabeth on the throne of England, as well as ruling Scotland too. The irony and the contrasts are irresistible to filmmakers. Should we have a think about the timelines of these films as well as what they cover? Because they make interesting choices about what they want to dramatise, what slice of life they want to take. And I wonder what you think about those, why they've done that as well. I think it's a real challenge to filmmakers to make a story that effectively covers about 30 years. Mm. I look at the Tudor experts. Yes, well, you, <laughs> always to, yeah, <laughs> you always want to you finish with her execution in 1587, course. and quite a lot of them start with her arriving in Scotland in mm. 1561. To compress that into the runtime of most of these films for about two hours is definitely a challenge. Uh, interestingly, the 1971 film starts even earlier. It starts in France. It starts in 1560 when she loses her mother and her first husband, Francois. That, it seems to me, quite traumatic, quite dramatic, and is completely locked out of the 2018 film. Perhaps you've just got too much going on, you know, you don't want to introduce too many themes. Yes, another character as well. Mm -hmm. Three yeah. husbands is a lot to fit into mm. a film. <laughs> <laughs> and Francois, it was a bit of a drip. It was, I mean, he was, it literally was a bit of a drip. His mother, Catherine de' Medici, wrote to his governor saying that he needs to blow his nose more. <laughs> yeah. He was very frail, he was yeah. his stutter. I think it was a hostile source, but said he had undescended testicles. So I think all that... It sounds like a hostile source. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about the look of the thing? There's some very important decisions made with both these films about the sort of colour palette, the looks of the women, the costuming, the light. What strikes you about these? There's always an attempt to make Scotland look very bare, mm -hmm. very rugged, and the interiors are always very much of stone, whereas in England it's usually wood. There's a warmth 
to it, whereas there's sort of this barrenness, barbarianness about the way that Scotland is presented. It's also worth talking about, as you said, the costuming is really interesting in both of them. It's funny how what people think historically accurate costumes are and what they are, in that I think the 1971 version feels very sort of authentic because it feels like that era of, you know, that very sort of high-level masterpiece Mm theatre kind of BBC historical drama. But you watch it now and you're like, actually, this is very, very inflected by 1971. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very striking, I think, particularly the wedding. Mm-hmm. You know, she's in a white dress, which yeah. obviously is quite wrong. That's white mm-hmm. wedding dresses are Queen Victoria onwards. That's what set those. But of course, you always use white dresses because you're signalling to the audience now, this mm-hmm. is a wedding. Mm-hmm. And he's in this amazing kind of white outfit, mm. you know, <laughs> looking quite extraordinary. <laughs> Timothy Dalton, thank well, He looks extraordinary for stop. <laughs> yeah, with this sort of, yeah, coral wig. I mean, it's very over the top. You know, it's interesting watching that in tandem with, of course, the 2018 one, which is super 2018. I mean, kind of Queen Amidala comes out yeah. rather than Mary. You know, this very kind of high concept costume. Mm. You, know, you can say, oh, my goodness, this looks completely of its time and not historical. But actually, you could say the same, I think, about the 71. I think so. But I also think that the 2018 version is interesting because it's actually telling a story through hair in a way that I'm not yes. sure I've ever seen a movie do in quite the same way. <laughs> And so, you know, we're used to the story of Elizabeth's transformation through makeup. But in this one with Sir Ronan and Margaret Roby, we have this extraordinary kind of contest about wigs and hair on these really elaborate hair pieces. The pure drama of Mary's story sets filmmakers an enormous challenge. Between the Reformation and political and dynastic schisms, Mary ruled a country that was in turmoil. Her second husband, Henry Darnley, was blown up and murdered, and husband number three, James Bothwell, almost certainly raped her before she married him. All this before she crossed the border to England and threw herself on Elizabeth's mercy. It's a vast amount to cram into a movie. It's hard. I can imagine in development meetings, everyone going, this is a great story, there's tragic heroin, there's murder, there's explosions, there's potential, possible, alleged rape. There's all of it, it's an escape. And yet I can imagine them then sort of trying to write it and thinking, oh, hell, we've got to put that in and that battle, but that wasn't quite a battle and difficult. Alex? I think that's a real problem in it. I mean, I have to say, like, you know, we've mentioned the two big films that we're talking about, the 1971 film, the 2018 film, and we could also, Sarah and I were also big fans of the 1936 John Ford film with Catherine Hepburn. I do not think there has been a great film mm. about Mary, Queen of Scots despite the fact it is an incredible story, absolutely extraordinary. And I think it is, there's just too much. What is her story, though? Because she can't just want the crown, she gets the crown very early on, so that's sort of just solved at the beginning. She wants to rule, but then there's all this stuff about blokes and husbands and blowing up and all this, and this is actually a sort of sideline. Then you should really just focus on her and Elizabeth and not have all that other stuff, because Mm. it's extraneous. In terms of characterisation, though, and I think Saoirse Ronan comes closest, Mm. what they're missing Mm. is... Mary's joie de vivre. I mean, everyone mentions it. This utter charm and warmth and laughter and sort of childishness. But I find Vanessa Redgrave very sort of simpering and wet. Harry? What's become of your pain? Why are you here? Forgive me, Harry. Our child is still alive. It is not yet time. I have never betrayed you, but I have wronged you and I beg your forgiveness. Well, that's what Catherine Hepburn 
brings to the role. Catherine Hepburn has charm in spades, right? And she right. uses it, you know, and I think that that is part of what makes it such an appealing version, even though the history of it, as I said, will drive you crazy, yeah. is her film. And it is a star vehicle for Catherine Hepburn. And it is absolutely about her charm and how everybody is drawn to her. It's clear that she's the star and there are these men around her who are having to get put in their various places in that kind of classic Hollywood way. And we're figuring out who is the strong man here who's going to be her equal. Mm-hmm. And she dispenses with the brother and she dispenses with Darnley. And each of them falls by the wayside until it's Frederick March left standing in a kilt, you know, <laughs> face to face with her as her equal, right? A huge part of the problem is trying to force Mary's story into the template of a romance because it just doesn't work. And the really problematic part is trying to make Bothwell mm-hmm. the romance. I think it's problematic for story and it's problematic in a host of other ways to do with feminism <laughs> and historiography, of course. Yeah. So there are lots of historical novels that present Bothwell as the great lover of Mary, Queen of Scots. And so I had this kind of, you know, vague idea. And then watching the 2018, I was like, he's definitely a rapist. Yes. One difference in the 2018 the, the, film is that he is shown to kind of rape her effectively on the wedding night, whereas I think historically that's kind of pre-marriage, right? Yes. The idea is that he abducts her, probably yeah. rapes her, and then it, after that, she feels forced to marry him. Yeah. And he yeah. quickly yeah. divorces his wife. And, and he asked her to marry him before, and she said no. Yeah. Yeah. And then he abducts, yes, with about 800 men, doesn't yeah. he? We lose, as well, that she is pregnant with his twins and has a miscarriage yeah, so of the twins, out, and, and that, that is never that. represented. No. And in the John Ford, the abduction is that he's saving her from everybody else, so that he's abducting her for her own good. So, I mean, the degree to which it is actually apologizing mm. for all of this violence against women is really quite extraordinary when you look at how it presents him. Although, you'll be happy to hear he does go mad at the end. (laughs) We touched earlier on the fact that these films are mostly just as much about Elizabeth as Mary. I would like us to have a look at a clip. This is from the 2018 film and it gives us a bit of an insight, I think, into how that rivalry or relationship is framed. God would have a woman be a wife and a mother. So you defy his will? No. I choose to be a man. And marriage is dangerous. Such a man as I might marry, finding himself disappointed. He would conspire. No prince's revenues be so great that they satisfy the insatiable ambition of men. This I understand. Which is why you are the closest thing I shall ever have to a wife. There seems to be a common trope in the films, which is to compare a masculine Elizabeth with a feminine Mary. And there's very much this kind of question about gender conformity going on and if you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You know, Elizabeth doesn't marry and is criticised for that. Mary marries and she gets it wrong. But people seem to come back to this again and again. What do you make of it and what should we do with it in terms of the history? Um, I think I agree with all that, but actually I do think that they've feminised Elizabeth Margot Robbie a bit. Mm. The whole thing when she gets smallpox in 1562, and I think they're right to make a big deal of that. I mean, that was huge. She nearly died, and she was disfigured for life after that. Actually, it's really interesting to look at the gender of it, and I think, you know, in that scene with Margot Robbie where she talks about being a man, it's something quite interesting that they're sort of getting Mm. towards. But then you sort of end up with this sense, and the way that then cuts to sort of Mary getting married, you do rather feel that Elizabeth is being punished, mm. that it's like, oh, now you're going to die childless, Mary wins, because she had a kid. And it's like, yeah. there's something very mm. anti-feminist, actually, <laughs> that sort of comes out of this theming, and it becomes a bit uncomfortable. Tell me what to do. We must make civil war in Scotland. You would have me to pose a sister monarch. It is either civil war there or civil war here. 
I want to know nothing of it. The arrangement shall be mine alone. What I like about that scene is it's very true to Elizabeth. Yeah, go ahead, but I don't want to know anything about it. You know, you take care of it, Cecil, and this sort of blocking out of what she is actually doing. One of the things that's missing, I think, from many of the presentations of Mary Queen of Scots is consistency on the fact that she was also very, very good at that. Mm -hmm. She's sometimes presented as a bit of sort of an innocent, mm -hmm. but then they let her do the plotting sometimes, but then also she doesn't really know what's going on because she's presented in that very sort of feminine, doesn't understand kind of way. I would love to see one that's focused on these sort of political machinations and this game that's going on between the two of them and the way that they are using men to play that game. Let's think about the sexual politics. Let's have a look at a clip from the 1971 film. This is with Darnley. You seem very rich, Davy. I am valued. No, you are hated. But not by you, sweet Harry. The commoner. The detested little foreigner. Ah, you're jealous of my influence. Remember, this is made pretty soon after homosexuality yeah. has just become legal. You must speak for me, Davy. I will be king here. I have the right to be a king. All the Catholic nobles of England will support Mary's cause if I am king. But you are vicious, Harry. You have a taste for all the vices. I thought you loved me. I love the queen better. And I think it a cruel act to help put you between her sheets. You want to keep me between yours? Oh, Edinburgh is full of pretty boys. And like you, I have a taste for a woman as well. I shall not like comfort. We are outcasts in this court. No man is your friend save me, and no man is mine save you. Like it or not, sweet Harry, we must hold to each other. The Queen! I do think Dalton's Darnley is very good. He's I think so he's, good. You know, so, so good. The hair aside. Yeah. Uh, the man could act. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's perfect. perfect. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So it is very bold in terms of sexual politics for the time in which it's made. I think it's surprising to see it in 1971. Maybe I don't know enough about 1971, but... It's quite an interesting historical question because there is dispute on it, as I well, understand because it. Because 16th century, lots of people shared beds. Right, yeah. Bedfellows. Where do we sit historically? Yeah. We are following the evidence insofar as we've got Darnley as our great cock chick. So we know that about him, and we know that they shared a bed. And it's just adding two and two together, yeah. whether we're actually making four or not. I don't think it's so wildly speculative it could be untrue. No, I mean, there's so much rumour yes. for a filmmaker, as long as you've got one rumour or one yeah. hostile. Oh, yeah, that's what yeah. yeah. I need. Yeah. <laughs> the 2018 film came out, we were told that this is a feminist film, and I think we've already decided in ways it's not, and review articles said things, look, you've got menstruation on the screen. How refreshing. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you sort know. of haven't. You've got an illusion <laughs> yeah. to it. Yeah. It's basically like an ad for a sanitary towel. Oral <laughs> <laughs> sex as well. Yeah. 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 My, my kids walked in on that movie. Yeah. <laughs> but if they're presenting him in this film, I mean, because, as you say, probably bisexual, presenting him as someone who is 
not intersect and won't sure, have got like, that. It, won't, won't that workaround. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> a, I was say, it's not like, if you're disgusted by yeah. you know penetrative sex with a woman, why you go down on her? Well, that's well, exactly, wow, okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's fine. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think the way I read the scene was that what it was trying to do is to suggest that, that he's sophisticated enough to recognize that she doesn't know anything about sexual pleasure and that he's trying to seduce her and charm her into marriage with him and that as soon as the wedding's over, he doesn't care, he's got what he wants. And so that centering her pleasure in that mm. sense is a way of, again, enacting that seduction in a way that is you know, very unambiguous for 21st century viewers. We're about to witness the first coronation at Westminster Abbey in 70 years. And Gone Medieval from History Hit is your perfect companion for the event. From the earliest English coronation records. To what the royal regalia used in the ceremony means. From the surprising origins of the recognition part of the service. To the lavish banquets that took place afterwards. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And on Gone Medieval in April... We'll be exploring the medieval origins of this feast of pageantry. We'll try to pick out the key moments for you to watch and trace their origins back into the mists of time. We've got some great guests and fascinating topics to lift the lid on a moment when, let's face it, people all around the world will have gone medieval. Subscribe and follow Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. What I want us to get to is their meeting, because this is something that filmmakers cannot resist. It hasn't been resisted since Schiller in 1800, <laughs> making the two queens meet. I am here to meet you, as you so urgently demanded. My business can only be discussed between us face to face. I know you to be the enemy of all rebels against their rightful prince. Indeed, madam, you are right. The crime of my lords against their anointed queen is so great, it buries all past differences between us. I am confident of your help. I ask it as a right. I see that you have courage. And I see you are the great queen of whom all speak. <laughs> and you are young. Not too young to ride at the head of an army. Mary wants English troops to help regain her Scottish crown, but the script reveals their rivalry through Elizabeth's subtle refusal. How else may I aid you? Be open with me, dear cousin, for be assured there is no waking hour in my day when you are far from my thoughts. Your fate is linked with mine. We are princes both. We are joined by blood. 
What else have you to tell me or to ask of me? Nothing. Nothing? Why, what else could there be? Some helpful word concerning the murder of Lord Darnley. Yes, of course. Rest assured, Elizabeth, that I am innocent in the matter. That gives me great joy. For when you are honorably acquitted of the crime of which you are accused, then you shall have your army and your money. Cousin, put it out of your mind that I came to England merely to save my life. I came to recover my honor. If you dare to doubt my word that I am innocent, then I will go at once to France. You shall not. Madam, in the past, you have sheltered those very traitors who now rule in Scotland. They entered freely into England, just as freely they returned. Do you offer me less than my treacherous subjects? Am I your prisoner? If so, by what law? If you forbid me to go to France, what will you do with me? I shall take you deeper into England for your protection. Then I am your prisoner. If you are innocent, what have you to fear? You have deceived me. You are in league with my brother. I will answer no accusations. Who is there who may try me? Who is my equal? Will you do it in public before the eyes of the world? No. I mean, that's, you just can't no. like her. No. no. She's, I'm afraid she's, she's conforming to that word. Hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, she comes across as very silly. Yeah. The filmmakers couldn't resist giving Mary a combative retort that her son would inherit Elizabeth's throne. It is not enough, madam, to speak one's mind in season and out as you do. That is not the conduct of a queen. It is the outpouring of a pampered woman demanding that all indulge her. It does not surprise me that you are here, helpless, and that your brother rules. You are not fit for the high office to which you were born. And you, madam, who hate me and wish me dead and fear to kill me, you are my mortal enemy. Above all, it is clear that Elizabeth fears Mary. And whatever my fate, my son will rule here in time. Of course, in real fact, they didn't meet. Mm. I know they wrote each other letters and that's quite boring to put on mm. the screen. Mm. They nearly met in 1562 and Elizabeth called it off and it was because of the massacre of Vassy, perpetuated the by the geezers, by Mary's mm. uncles. And that was her excuse anyway. So she wrote and said, I'm not meeting you because of this. The 2018 film uses very deliberate design techniques to suggest an unreal quality to the fictionalised meeting between Mary and Elizabeth. To war with Scotland and betray my own clergy on a Catholic's behalf. No, I cannot. You know I cannot. Did you come so far at such great risk only to refuse me? I came because... If you refuse me an army, Say it to my face. Do not force me to beg to your back. I will kneel before you if I must. It would make no difference. You are safe here in England. That's all I can offer. They have been abandoned by so many. I am utterly alone. If you still seek my protection, you would do well to watch your words. I will not be scolded by my inferior. Your inferior? I am a Stuart, which gives me greater claim to England than you possess. So they never met in reality. They do in both these films. 
And actually, one clever line is given to Elizabeth in there, where she says that no one can know that we meet. If you mm. speak of it to anyone, I will deny it. Which I like creating the possibility that yeah. it might have happened, right. but there's possible no deny. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, this is very Mel Gibson. Yes, at the beginning of Braveheart, historians from England will say I'm a liar. So you know, he's covering himself. <laughs> yeah. But actually, I find that quite offensive because it's like then he is suggesting it's true, not fiction. <laughs> yeah. Does it work to break with historical reality like this? What does it achieve? I have no problem with the idea of putting them together to cut through all that boring letter writing. Then the letters were very emotional and evoked a lot of emotion. There's a story where Robert Dudley comes into Elizabeth's room and she's absolutely distraught over a letter that Mary has sent her from her imprisonment. So putting that in a film where they come together is not the problem. Some of the lines <laughs> and some of the portrayals I think are more of a problem, but the, the fact of it doesn't bother me as a historian. Jesse, what do you think? Yeah, I think the scenes are underwhelming, especially in 1971. Redgrave cannot hold her own against <laughs> Jackson, can she? I think the Saoirse Ronan one is better, but again, it goes back to what we were saying. What is the film saying? Who's winning? Is that what's happening? Why is Elizabeth this sort of anti-feminist? It just doesn't quite gel. It's I, not the denouement you're hoping for. And yeah. if you're going to sort of corrupt the record to that degree, there has to be a reason for yeah, it. That's what I was going to say. So it doesn't have enough dramatic impact. The problem is none of us objects to putting them together is that then you should have fireworks. Mm. That's what you've been building up to. So now show us these two ways of being women in this world coming into direct conflict with each other. What's the confrontation? You don't know where to look because it's so distracting because they've decided to put them in this bizarre space where there are linens and veils and things hanging between them. But it's deeply distracting. Instead of actually focusing on the dramatic impact, that is part of the filmmaker's kind of nervousness about yeah. approaching history mm -hmm. is that they know they didn't meet. So there's like, okay, so we're going to kind of allude to that by having all these veils that we're just, you know, visually presenting to you that this is complicated, that there are levels of abstraction and removal here. But and I'm like, well, don't be coy about it. Look, yeah, I mean, yeah. come on, if you're making this film, then grasp the damn nettle yeah, and have yeah, the two yeah. of them have a really banging scene. You know, why are we trying to pretend that we're kind of still on the right side of history? Because you're not. So yeah, just yeah. accept that. Yeah, exactly. We <laughs> do at least have a Scottish-sounding queen in the social <laughs> yeah. which is an improvement. I think it's great. And I think people always say, oh, she should be speaking French, she should be speaking Scottish. Truth is, she spoke impeccable French with a French accent and impeccable broad Scots with a Scottish accent. Her problem was when she was sort of speaking, what accent would she be using then? Probably more French, but it's fine. Mm -hmm. Anything goes, really. The last set of clips I'd like to look at, and I want to talk about the ending of both films, yeah. are the clips of the executions. Yeah. Forgive me, madam. I forgive you with all my heart. I thank you even. I hope this death shall put an end to all my troubles. For in my end is my beginning. your hands, I commend my spirit. That's horrid. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, move, we'll move on to the, the next one. This day, February the 8th, the year of our Lord, 1587. She thinks herself a martyr. I think it does have this wonderful ending, both of them. You know, this wonderful sort of payback at the end when 
Mary's son, James, mm. inherits the crown and Elizabeth dies childless and her dynasty ends. So there's that. And I think, you know, in terms of a quest, it's that she wants the English crown, if not for herself, then for her dynasty. James, my only son, I pray that with your life, you will succeed where I could not, and for which I am about to give my life. In my end is my beginning. I shall be watching you from heaven. And we shall have peace. I love that. Can I just say, I love the way that ends. It picks up the very beginning where she's seasick. And you think yeah. that very first scene when she's down like that, yeah. mm. that is going to be her execution. Yeah. Mm. I thought that was very clever. Mm. Well, that's something she says in her trial as well, is that she doesn't want to shipwreck her soul by her relationship to Elizabeth and she wouldn't plot against her. Can we talk about the ageing? Mm. Mm. Um, or lack thereof. Or, exactly. or lack thereof. So, well, Elizabeth no. ages. Mm. So Elizabeth ages. Mm. She's allowed to age. <laughs> and, and Mary, Queen of Scots, is still the same age as she was when she was in prison 20 years earlier. It's obviously a deliberate decision. There's an, a suggestion in the voiceover as Elizabeth is thinking through what what's thinking. happening mm. that something like, you know, she would stay young forever, but it's supposed to represent the kind of mythologizing of Mary. I and see that actually, not an aged woman, that's but a it. young resplendent queen. Exactly, in her memory. Thank you. Mm. And so that this is Elizabeth's reconstruction of it and that it's hinting toward the mythologization of Mary as eternally youthful. But it doesn't make enough of that. And it's just a kind of throwaway you have to be paying quite close attention to. And then you still have to think mm -hmm. that that one phrase can do all of this work visually, that it can make sense of something that visually makes no sense. Yeah. But it, or it, it also unlocks. It's just not enough. It unlocks the whole story. It says that the entire story has been seen from Elizabeth's point of view. Yeah, yeah. So then we're suddenly, wait, so now we're playing with memory and perspective in the final scene. And that's another way of talking about the way in which this film, I think, is just trying to do too much, too much. all of yeah. the time. I think the costuming is very interesting in both of these versions that you have, you know, we know that she was, I think, executed in a red yes. colour of masterdom. Yes. This is obviously very deliberate. But we've got some very sexed up versions because <laughs> it's such a great cinematic reveal, right? So, you know, you have Vanessa Redgrave in this very sort of 1970s, that sort of Laura Ashley cut, the big <laughs> hoofy sleeves, the, everything is going on, you know, tight bodice, sexy as hell. She's got it, she takes a coat off. Saoirse Ronan mm, yeah. gets the full RuPaul's Drag Race reveal. Yeah. I mean, you know, was Velcro invented? <laughs> it was, actually. You yeah. know, so there we go. So there's a full, like, vroom, and there it is. Well, but mean, it's it fabulous, is. though. But it's, yeah. no, I mean, it's actually, because it is such a dramatic choice to go and be executed in red. It's yeah. like, I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? That the symbolism is so deliberate in real life that I kind of think you can forgive filmmakers for just camping that up to the max. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> And the clean cut as well, to be a nerd. It took mm. three strokes. It kind of took two strokes and then they had to sort of saw it in the third one. So I, I mean, can you can't see make that's not really that. It's yeah. not the table <laughs> you Well, seeing as we've killed her off, I suppose we've got to the end of our discussion. But thank you very much once again for a brilliantly insightful, interesting discussion about these films and about, I don't know, womanhood, femininity, filmmaking, storytelling, the historical record, all sorts of other things on the way. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.
Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.